This is FinTech Takes, the podcast keeping you in the loop on all the latest FinTech trends, news, and ideas. I'm Alex Johnson, creator of the FinTech Takes newsletter, your host and self-confessed FinTech nerd. Let's go. Hello, and welcome back to the FinTech Takes podcast. This is, unless I've miscounted the days, going to be the last podcast of the FinTech Takes feed for 2023, which is sort of a crazy thing to say. And it's been a very long and yet quickly passing year. I'm not sure how both those things are true at the same time. And I thought what would be fun for this podcast would be to have a special guest on to help me recap what happened in 2023. And I could think of no one better then senior reporter at TechCrunch, the co-host of TechCrunch's excellent equity podcast, and the person who I think sits at the very center of the fintech news ecosystem, Marianne Azevedo. Marianne, thank you so much for joining me. I'm honored, Alex. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Yeah, no, I've been looking for an excuse to have you on for a long time. So this felt like the perfect thing. I will say that off the top, everything I do at FinTech Takes basically relies on all of the reporting that you and your colleagues do at TechCrunch. So I'm so, so grateful for the work that you guys do. And to prep for this podcast, I literally just spent all last night reading through your FinTech archives. So I can't wait to dive into some of the uh, stories from 2023 that we're maybe still thinking about or maybe wished that folks had paid a little bit more attention to. So just delighted to have you here. Thanks so much. Appreciate that. And likewise, your takes are awesome. So thank you for all your hard work. Oh, well, thank you. So nice of you to say. I appreciate that. So as I just said, I think what we'd love to do is just take turns kind of swapping on stories that we thought were interesting. I mean, I I can, I can hardly sort of even put myself in your shoes in terms of the volume of fintech news that sort of flows by you on a daily basis and a weekly basis. But I I asked you to come up with, you know, two to four sort of particular stories or events from the last year of fintech that sort of made it onto your personal sort of highlight reel for 2023. So why don't you as the guest go first and give us a story from 2023 that still stands out to you? Well, I would say I have to mention Better.com's public debut. Oh, um, yeah. 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 Like we all knew that. Well, we didn't all know it was coming because I honestly, I think a lot of us didn't think it would actually happen, but Is miraculously it? it did. And it bombed just about as badly as one would have expected. So I would say that was one of the more interesting stories of the year that we covered. I remember that one. And I i mean, obviously, you did a tremendous amount of great reporting on all the different chapters of the Better Saga. So kudos to you for covering that story so closely. But I, I remember when the SPAC actually happened, I always sort of chuckle. I read your stuff so frequently that I can kind of tell a little bit when I read like when something really surprises you or something just like <laughs> you kind of can't make sense of it. And I, I remember reading the something you wrote either right before the SPAC happened, but we knew it was going to happen or right after it happened where you're like, I can't believe that actually happened because it seemed pretty perplexing that it was even going forward in the moment, right? It did. And I think that it was something that the company felt like it had to do. It really needed the cash. I interviewed Vishal Garg, the CEO, and it's not the first time I've talked to him, but the last time I spoke with him was well before all the layoff drama had started. And it's very interesting because his persona, the, the way he presents himself is exactly as everyone describes it. He's got this very charismatic kind of personality. He's charming. He comes across as very pleasant, you know, and then you talk to people who've sure. worked with him and then you hear these 
stories that are, are like, yeah, you know, paint a very different picture from the man that's presenting himself to you. And so it's just really interesting. So he was on his best behavior when we spoke <laughs> and, you know, it was just, yeah, the company went public. It went public via SPAC, not doing very well. I think I checked earlier today, it was trading at about 49 cents a share. Yeah. I mean, and I think it's interesting, right? Because there's sort of two parts to it. There's the personal part and the business part, right? And the personal part, I mean, just to add to your sort of commentary, which I think is very well put, I've never interviewed him or spoken with him, but the quote that was reported him to have said, you're all dumb dolphins and you're embarrassing me is, it has to be one of the like three or four like all time business quotes ever. And I think about it on like a weekly basis, I think. So that's on, on, on a sort of personal leadership level, right. something that I just I will never forget, no matter how many years pass. And on the business front, and you've done a lot of reporting about this as well, but it was just a really hard year and has been more than one year of difficult times for anyone in the mortgage space, right? I think that was another thing that I knew intellectually, but I had not been doing fintech reporting and analysis the last time that we went through sort of change in the interest rate environment or the macro environment. And so you sort of forget just how like viscerally important interest rates and the macro environment are to mortgage. Like mortgage can be booming and be this huge business and it's just growing like a weed. And there's all these prop tech companies and fintech companies just pouring into mortgage. And then interest rates rise and the whole market just freezes, right? And that was, I right. think, one of the things about the whole better thing that kind of caught me by surprise was their insistence on moving forward with a SPAC, which was sort of out of fashion by the time they did it anyway. But on top of that, doing it for a mortgage business in this interest rate environment, like there was no chance it was going to generate a good result on the public market, like zero chance. Right. I mean, interest rates are so, so high right now. And Better.com was doing very well when they were historic yeah. low rates at like two and a half percent, three percent a few years ago. They were making a lot of money off the refinancing boom. Clearly that no one is refinancing now. I think right. you know, better.com had has underlying technology that of the company is good from what I understand. So I think they're they're still trying to position themselves as, hey, we've got the technology. We're here. We can do things as the market turns around. It's going to turn around next year. Very optimistic. I still find it difficult to believe. But yeah, in general, I mean, it's not the only prop tech startup to stumble this year. We've seen a, a lot, unfortunately. Yeah. And like you said, it's not a surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can I give you my first story that jumped to mind when I was thinking about this exercise? Of course. Yes. Can't wait to hear. Okay. So this one I probably was the story that caught me the most by surprise and ended up sort of having the biggest kind of ripple effects in terms of what I was covering. It kind of just sort of my whole year kind of pivoted around it, which was the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Well, that was going to be one of mine too. Was it? Was it? Yes, yeah. I, yes. I figured I wanted to jump in there with that one and steal it from you before you said that <laughs> one. But I, 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 how could you have a list like this and not have Silicon right. Valley Bank on it? Because- I mean, it's funny, and I've, I've told this story on other podcasts, but the thing that was really interesting about that one was I did hear some whispers about it about a month before everything happened, mm, you know? And did. so it was one of those stories where, yeah, and it was kind of, it reminds me a little bit of the crypto stuff in 2022, where it's like kind of some weird signals or things that are happening, but it was so like murky and uncertain that it was like, I don't know, I, I don't have any hard information on this. So like, I was just sort of keeping my ear open and... Then, of course, just over like a couple of days, everything kind of broke down. And obviously, there was 
that weekend following the FDIC's closure of Silicon Valley Bank that I'd love to know what your recollections of that weekend were. But I I remember it was one of those ones where I was just sort of glued to my phone the whole time and I was following Twitter and there was the guys from the All In podcast who were tweeting like apocalyptic things about the banking industry and, you know, Silicon Valley melting to the ground. And there were just a million messages going around in like Slack channels and private WhatsApp groups and Twitter DMs. And so I remember just being like in a way where I was almost ignoring my like wife and kids, like just completely glued (laughs) to my phone. And then, of course, you know, we get to the following week and in relatively short order, the FDIC has the situation relatively buttoned up and they've guaranteed all of the depositors. And then, of course, there were sort of the bigger sort of ripple effects coming out of that. But what was your sort of memory of like when that news was breaking? It was really surreal. I think we were all in a bit of a a bit of a shock. I used to live in Silicon Valley and, you know, Silicon Valley Bank just has always been this I don't know. I don't want to, I don't know if legend's the right word, but you know, it had this reputation sure, yeah. and it represented so much with regards to startups and the venture world. And just to see it collapse so suddenly and just so awfully, really, it was, it really happened. Yeah. It wasn't pretty, you know? <laughs> I mean, not that any collapse no. is going to be yeah. like a, a pretty thing, but it, it, yeah, it was very surreal. We were kind of all shocked on the desk trying to figure out, make sense of it. It was it was very interesting to see the startups in the fintech world kind of rise up and say, okay, this is an opportunity here. You know, we have an opportunity. And yeah. so that's continued to play out, of course, throughout the year, but that was something we were also looking at. And then of course that impacted First Republic, right? So, you know, like you said, there was definitely a ripple effect here in a lot of different directions. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I think that it was funny. I I looked back at my archive of stuff that I wrote, and the um, the piece I wrote on that Friday was the title was NGMI, right? Not going to make it, and uh, it was it was kind of a dark piece for me. Just sort of talking about first, like what happened with Silicon Valley Bank, like to the extent that we knew at the time, mm-hmm. and then you know, kind of a broader reflection at the end on just like, you know, what does this mean? And like, how is this a reflection of what's been happening in fintech and in banking and in Silicon Valley and in VCs, you know, just more broadly? And then on Monday, when it was announced that all of the depositors were going to be guaranteed and that it, you know, wasn't going to cause some kind of massive contagion, although it did ripple out into other banks like First Republic, as you said, I think the the title of the post I wrote was, we all going to make it, right? And so it was sort of like (laughs) nice bookends to either part of a really crazy weekend. But yeah, I mean, to your point about ripple effects, there were so many different things. Obviously, in the short term, I am sure a lot of the conversations you had as well were like talking to fintech founders or just tech founders generally who had their business accounts at Silicon Valley Bank and were concerned about making payroll, right? The following week, yes, like, what are we yes, going to do? Right. And so there was like that, like urgency that was happening panic. where people were trying to figure out solutions over the weekend. Panic, right? I mean, it was Real a, panic, it was a bank yeah. run. It was very, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So that was really interesting. And then, as you said, like broader, once we got away from the emergency part of it, it did definitely seem like one of those areas where there were a whole category of B2B fintech companies. So this is like the Mercury's and Brex's and those types of companies, Arc, you know, yeah. row that really, yeah, Arc that were just like right in the right spot at the right time and mm-hmm. managed to scoop up a whole bunch of customers. So it was kind of 
weirdly like I remember feeling a bit of like whipsaw between sort of very negative, scary, existential feelings. And then like, oh, like this is kind of a boost for fintech. It was sort of like COVID in a way because like very bad and then sort of pivoting into like weirdly good at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. It was really sad to see it happen, like you said. And I think I think all those the founders, you know, that were the bank there or scrambling and scared. I can't even imagine, right? I can't even imagine being a founder oh, yeah. and having to be in that position of telling your employees, I'm not sure I'll be able to pay you. Like who would have thought, you know, mm-hmm. like really, who would have thought that, that we would be dealing with that? But yes, it, indeed it was, did spell opportunity for some fintechs. We did talk to Mercury during the year who had given us some statistics, some numbers in terms of how much of a biz- boom in business they'd seen. Brex obviously also saw a bump, although from what I understand, that kind of leveled off some in the third quarter. But yeah, in general, I think it was just sobering. It was really, really sobering. And I think it just made everyone realize that you can never be too careful. And we we heard a lot of founders and a lot of people say, I learned from this. I'm not going to keep all my cash in one place. And people started spreading mm-hmm. out their mm-hmm. money, right? Like to in several yeah. different entities, right? The, all sorts of interesting things came out of it. And then all these different businesses all of a sudden offering FDIC insurance of really high numbers, right? Like in the millions, yeah. which yeah. we I'd never heard of before either. So yeah, there was a lot of things mm-hmm. that came out of this. Yeah, well, it's funny you say that, too, because the FDIC insurance was the other thing that kind of stuck out to me when I was thinking about that story is just like this was maybe six months to a year before the SVB thing happened. But there was a crypto focused like neobank called Eco. And one of the parts of their website was actually like a whole multi-part blog series that they had on their website that was the focus of it was why FDIC insurance doesn't matter. And it was this oh. whole like impassioned case of like, you know, we don't need FDIC insurance. Obviously, there were crypto focused neobanks, so they didn't offer FDIC insurance. But like, it's not important. It doesn't really actually solve a problem. Kind of blah, blah, blah. It was like a whole thing. You, you can still Google it on like the Wayback Machine and find it. I think it's since been deleted. But it was really like another one of those things that kind of stuck in my head. And it was such a sharp contrast to the environment right after SVB failed, where literally like the number one feature was FDIC insurance, expanded FDIC insurance through like deposit sweep networks where you could get more Mm -hmm. than $250,000, you know, and and even like expanded like treasury management capabilities. Like I saw a bunch of like B2B fintech companies coming out and going like, we'll help you manage where all your cash is across these different banks. We'll put some of it into T-bills, some new like fintech infrastructure companies cropped up that were like helping fintech companies and banks kind of manage their balance sheets and stuff. So a lot of very boring and some had argued antiquated things in financial services suddenly became very sexy right after SVB. Yeah, for sure. I mean, security all of a sudden became like so, so important. So again, you know, sometimes good things come out of these catastrophes. So, but it's still playing out, right? I don't think like the ramifications of the collapse are, we're still seeing all of that play out. It's not over yet. No, not at all. I mean, yeah, I, I think luckily the sort of public market pressure on regional banks seems to have lessened at least a little bit. I know there are still mm-hmm. some that are challenged and it's generally just hard to be a regional bank right now. But it did look for a little while, even after the FDIC stepped down, as if, you know, there'd be a like kind of a domino effect really impacting a lot more regional banks. And obviously First Republic and a couple did get impacted, but 
you know, things have seemingly calmed down a bit, but yeah, it's certainly not over and will probably be uh, something we're talking about in 2024. Do you want to give me your next story from 2023? Yeah, you know, really, it wasn't so much like a specific story. I would say it was more like themes, mm-hmm. I guess, that stood out sure, during yeah. the year. It was things like the decreased valuations we saw some of the larger fintechs raise money at lower valuations, which was not a surprise, but just very reflective of the current yeah. environment. We had we saw Stripe raise at a far lower valuation. I think, what was it, 50 billion that it raised at compared to 95. Ramp raised at a lower valuation. So I think, again, it was, it was just kind of reflective of the current environment we're in. They were still able to raise the capital, so that's encouraging, but definitely things yeah. come back down to earth a lot compared to 2021. Totally. Yeah. I uh, I was joking with somebody else recently that like, I'm probably going to be bouncing my grandkids on my knee like 50 years from now telling them about 2021. Like that's how crazy 2021 <laughs> right. was. Oh, was. And insane. I mean, no one knows that better than you. Yeah. You were like right in the middle of all these valuations. And I, I remember looking at some and it seemed like, and I'd, I'd be curious for your take on this, but like to me, the ones that were just bonkers in a lot of cases were those it was right around like Series C, right when like unicorns were getting minted, right? So it'd be like a hundred million dollar raise at a billion dollar valuation for like a Series C ish, like that right around B, C, maybe a little bit D. Like the valuations just they were completely disconnected from reality, and I couldn't understand them. And it it was such an interesting kind of to your point in late twenty twenty two, and then through twenty twenty three just seeing those valuations get like reset. And I think to your point, like it wasn't investors saying, hey, Ramp is a bad business or Stripe is a bad business or Klarna is a bad business. I mean, obviously they're not. And it still makes sense to put capital into those companies. But it was really interesting to watch, you know, investors and those companies just sort of grapple with, yeah, this is not this doesn't make any sense. It's not connected to fundamentals at all. And we need to have kind of a, a rational conversation about like what valuation makes sense. I was thinking the the poster child for me on this one actually is Klarna. Because mm, yeah. you know, if you look at like the whole history of Klarna, you know, it's it's funny, but like a lot of people don't realize it's been around for a long time, right? Like it's oh, yeah. it's almost like 15 years old. It's an old company. And for years, it was just sort of quietly building in kind of the e-commerce space in Europe. Uh, this was like before buy now, pay later was a term. It was just doing mm-hmm. like, you know, sort of like e-commerce based financing and payments. And it was a nice little company. It raised a little bit of money, but nothing crazy. And then I think right around 2019, if I'm remembering right, that's when investors, particularly like more generalist investors like SoftBank started knocking on their door and going like, hey, would you like a hundred million dollars? You know, yeah. and Sequoia too, right? Right, right. Yeah. And Tiger and these companies where they like they were just in it to try to like from a velocity perspective, like we have to get into buy now, pay later. And I, I always kind of felt a little sympathetic for the executives at these companies because it's like if someone knocks on your door and offers you money to build your business it's pretty unlikely and pretty you know, not reasonable to say like no to that. Like you say yes when someone wants to give you a check. But at the same time, I then felt really bad, you know, fast forward a couple of years when people are talking about Klarna's like down round and how they're going to have to raise it like an even steeper drop in their valuation. And, you know, I mean, they're going to their investors and saying, look, we did exactly what you told us to do, right? Like we 
We expanded into all of these countries. We grew really fast. We expanded our merchant partnerships, all of these things. Yes, we lost a lot of money, but like the assignment you gave us was grow at any cost. And we did that. And then to not be able to raise it anywhere close to that valuation like has to be frustrating. Well, I mean, yeah, that was a really major drop. I think 85% or something like from 45 billion to six something. But I will say, I mm-hmm. will say that Klarna has handled it very gracefully. I think, you know, that was a, yeah. felt like a big blow, but they didn't let it bring them down. They've really rallied, seem to be doing well, especially here in the U.S. business is doing well. And that's actually, I don't want to jump around too much, but one another story is that kind of the comeback, yeah. I guess, of Klarna and, and Affirm too, to some degree. You know, having having seen its stock plummet, we were all like, oh, no, buy now, pay later, because it became almost this bad word or phrase. But yeah, they rallied and, and they're they're both doing better than expected. But anyway, back to valuations. I will say that covering covering these raises in 2021, besides being exhausting, we knew like we knew it wasn't <laughs> sustainable. It was I was really to the point where I was just rolling my eyes because I was like, there's just no way. How can you raise money and then three to four months later you're back to me with hey we've you know we've doubled our valuation we've raised more cash it's like okay this <laughs> this is just not reality this cannot continue right and sure enough of course everything just cratered like to a halt and in a way like you know i don't want to point fingers because i i can't really say who's to blame here but i do agree with you i think a lot of investors were operating on fomo they didn't want to miss out on deals they were rushing to invest i had some very personally directly tell me that that they felt like they didn't have time to really do due diligence that either they were going to back a company or lose their chance so that contributed to these crazy valuations. Mark Goldberg of Index Ventures, I had interviewed him, had told me he described 2021 as he said last year was, this was in 2022, last year was the party, this year is the hangover. I thought that was one of the most perfect descriptions of what we were dealing with. And so, you know, yeah, I agree. It's like, here's these VCs telling these companies, yeah, we want you to grow. Just don't worry about it. Grow, grow, grow. Hire. Do what you got to do. Right. And then when they're losing money out the, you know, just losing so much cash, then it's all of a sudden like, hey, 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 reset your priorities. So I felt like, and I said this on Equity recently, like founders were getting whiplash. It's like, what do you want me to do? You want me to grow? But you want me, oh, now you want me to do this? You want me to lay off? What? You know, like, okay, I got to be making, I've got to focus on making money. Well, how am I supposed to do that while growing at the rate you told me you wanted me to grow? So things just got too crazy. And I'm not saying that's every VC, of course not. And I'm not saying every founder went nuts, but it was that kind of environment where I feel like some people just lost sight of, of reality. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the lessons I took away from it just broadly was that there was almost this kind of a weird thing to say, but it felt like there was almost too much alignment between founders and VCs. Mm, That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. Right. Like they were all too much on the same page where it's like, we need to grow. And they're like, yep, you need to grow. And here's money to go grow and go do that. And I kind of the more I've sort of studied the founder VC dynamic, I've sort of come to respect founders and VCs that are a little more, I don't know, adversarial is like a little bit too harsh of a word, but like they aren't afraid to disagree with each other, right? And, you know, I think that like to your point about VCs, there were some that I think were acting a little irresponsibly. There were some that I think were more like, I'm going to lose my job if I don't do this, but this doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So there was a certain Mm -hmm. amount of reluctance, I think, as well. But the thing I've kind of taken away from that is VC is a job, it's very dependent on the macro condition, right? Similar to what we were talking about with mortgages, where it's just Mm -hmm. like, 
when interest rates are rock bottom, LPs are looking for return and they shovel money to VCs as, as a category. And then those VCs are, VCs are expected to deploy capital. And you know, high growth businesses and technology businesses are the types of businesses that return multiples that justify those investments. And so that's kind of where the mania comes from. And when the environment changes and suddenly when interest rates went up, we saw all of this change. Suddenly the priorities from LPs change, which means that VCs priorities change. And I think that, you know, the companies that seem to do well, and I'm glad you brought up Klarna as an example. I think they're a good example of this. I think Affirm is a good example of this. I think there's a number of companies that did a good job with this. You know, Chime, I, I really admire as a company. Like, there are certain companies that I think navigated this environment a little bit better by saying, look, like, we have a vision for what we're trying to do. Sometimes that's going to require us to grow aggressively, even if it's an environment that doesn't really encourage growth. Or by contrast, it's an environment where we need to build carefully and we can't grow as fast as our VCs would want. And we're willing to have somewhat adversarial interactions with our investors and with even our board saying, you know, this is just not the right fit for us right now. We value your input, but we're not just going to like jump when you say jump. And I think those companies have been able to kind of ride out these big waves a little bit better because the the viewpoint from the founder and from the CEO is, you know, we're just going to keep kind of doing what we do. We have a vision, we have a 10-year plan, we know where we want to end up, and we're not going to like overreact to this volatility. And that's a hard lesson to learn in real time when all of this is happening. But with the benefit of hindsight, that's a, a pattern I've definitely noticed. Yeah. And that reminds me of a company that I covered, a startup called Lula, which claimed to be or aimed to be a stripe for insurance. And I was really impressed because we're so often, especially in 2021, a marker of a company doing well was perceived like one one that was just hiring at a crazy rate or, you know, things like that. And of course, many of those companies are the same companies that were laying off in 2022 and 2023. But Lula, the young pretty young co-founders, two brothers, actually had an opposite approach. You know, they said, hey, we feel like things are going to be changing. The environment's going to be changing. Let's get ahead of it. Let's be conservative. Let's not hire at crazy salaries. And they even would tell like would-be employees, look, we're not going to be offering you the most competitive salaries or the best perks. And they said, that's because we don't want to be laying you off in six months. And I thought, how mature and refreshing for these 20, I think they're 20 something founders, right? Because, totally. you know, yeah, they raised more money this year. They claim to be growing revenue wise. So I've always been impressed with that lean and mean mentality. And I think the companies that have operated and stuck to that mentality, even during a crazy time of hiring and you know, crazy perks and raising tons of cash are the ones that are still standing today that are doing okay. Like, for example, Ramp. Ramp hasn't laid off. It's one of the the few of these larger fintechs that right. have gone through evaluation cuts. I haven't heard of any layoffs there. So good for them. You know, that I think they've kind of operated with that. Let's not go crazy here. And good for them because they're one of the few of these bigger players that haven't had to lay off. Yeah, no, I think they're a really good example. And I think the other thing that Ramp touches on, and then we can jump to the next story, but I, I, the Ramp thing is interesting. I mean, you've done a great job covering them and they're a fascinating company. But one of the things that's always struck me as interesting about them is when it comes to like talent, because I'm, I'm glad you brought up like layoffs and hiring and sort of the, I mean, I've talked to, and I'm sure you probably have too, a bunch of folks who work in fintech who've been laid off or who are trying to find a new opportunity. And there, there's a human cost to this, right? That I think mm -hmm. is really important. But one of the things about Ramp that's always impressed me is 
to your point about not like over hiring or maybe not overdoing it from a salary or a perk perspective, they seem to attract people based on like the work, right? And I do think right. that one of the things that's interesting about some of these fintech companies that seem to be able to kind of ride out these waves and are a little more durable is they almost seem to attract employees based more on like the environment that they've created that those employees get to play in, right? So it's like, come here, do the most important or meaningful or fun work of your life. You know, in the case of Ramp, they have a real focus on like shipping fast and like having this like organizational agility. And I think, you know, I mean, that's not for everybody. I mean, given the state of my email inbox, it's probably not for me, but it's, you know, it's a really good fit for a certain archetype of person mm -hmm. in technology that wants to do that. And I can't speculate because I've never, you know, looked at like the various comp packages for employees at Ramp, but I would speculate that like that gives them a little more flexibility and not having to necessarily overpay for talent because that environment and that culture is a magnet for talent in and of itself. And so I do think there is definitely a lesson to learn from some of those companies. Yeah. And I, honestly, I can't speak to, you know, how they compensate their employees, but I have talked to Eric Gleiman more than once and he's always said that they, they were very measured in their approach when it came to hiring and just yeah. really didn't. I think if I now I can't remember off the top of my head, I should have looked it up. But I think earlier this year, I think they only had maybe 400 and was it 400 and some employees? I could be remembering. That sounds about but, right. Yeah, yeah. But it was far less than what you would expect for a company of its size and in the space and especially compared to some of its competitors. Can I give you uh, one more sort of macro theme that uh, jumped out to me? I, it's also less of an individual story than a macro theme, but I was pretty interested going through, and I, again, like I said, I went through the TechCrunch archive, which took me about like two hours to scroll through just all the stories in FinTech from 2023. <laughs> so again, kudos to you and the team for a lot of coverage. But one of the things that jumped out was the sort of trend of acquisitions in FinTech. You know, I thought that was really interesting because like just looking through some of the headlines, I mean, there were a bunch, right? There was Power, which was the credit card as a service platform that Marquetta scooped up. There was Bond, which was a banking as a service platform that FIS acquired. X1, the credit card startup that was acquired by Robinhood. Visa. Go Henry in the UK. Yeah, Visa. Visa um, Pismo. Visa and Pismo in Brazil, um, mm -hmm. you know, Go Henry and Acorns, Sora ID and Clear, even like Fifth Third Bank was acquiring multiple fintech companies, right? And so there was no shortage of acquisitions. And I, I thought that was really interesting because, and I'd be really curious for your perspective on this, having covered a bunch of these individual stories, but I totally get why the fintech companies would be looking for an off-ramp, right? Given the change in the environment and the difficulty raising money, like, you know, an acquisition, depending, of course, on the terms, is a pretty good outcome relative mm -hmm. to, like, I think, the potential paths in front of you, right? And, you know, the better.com SPAC and then trading at, you know, 40 cents a share is kind of like a, a purgatory that I'm not sure you want to end up in. And so um, I definitely think the acquisition path became a lot more attractive, even if it was getting acquired by a bank and maybe you never envisioned working for a bank, but it's a nice steady paycheck and you still get to kind of work on this problem that you're passionate about. So the acquisition from the fintech perspective makes a lot of sense to me. But I was also really curious to sort of try to parse as this news was happening, what was motivating the acquirers and like what was driving them to do that. And, you know, it was kind of a harder question to answer than I, I had thought, because when I was looking through some of the examples, 
it seemed to vary a lot, right? Some of it was larger fintech companies that are maybe maybe slowing down a little bit, maybe having a little bit more time sort of innovating or building products internally. And so they sort of grow their product roadmap through acquisitions. Maybe that's kind of the Marketa power story, or you know, maybe that's what you know, like Acorns was doing with GoHenry. In other cases, you know, if you look at someone like a Visa, like they're pretty acquisitive by nature. And after getting blocked on Plaid and stuff, I mean, I almost think of them as like, what's the most attractive acquisition target we can get that will make it through regulatory approval? And so yeah. maybe we need to look at yeah. Brazil or somewhere else and. You know, I think it was I think it was reported recently that Apple in sort of breaking up with Goldman Sachs might be looking at Pismo and Visa as like a partner mm. for like a post Goldman Sachs world for the Apple card. So maybe it's kind of a backdoor way of getting into some of these opportunities that they couldn't otherwise get into. But I don't know. I mean, it's really interesting to try to parse out the motives of the acquiring companies because it was a pretty diverse bunch. It was fintech companies, it was the card networks, it was banks, it was, you know, clear buying Sora ID, which is a digital identity verification provider. You know, clear is obviously the system we a lot of us use for navigating airports and sort of smoothing that experience. The idea that they're going to get into financial services and start sort of competing in, in that arena kind of blows my mind, right? And so what was your sort of takeaway on some of these acquisitions and like what was driving them? Did you see any themes or any consistent ideas there? Yeah, I mean, definitely M&A activity was pretty strong throughout the year, which was to be expected. We knew that that's usually what happens when a lot of companies can't go public. They're looking for exits and mm-hmm. there's a lot that weren't able to raise capital. They came in waves. I felt like there were there would always be these spurts of like, I'd have a week where there was like three or four M&A deals. And then I wouldn't hear about any for a while. Just last week, we wrote about Webull acquiring Flink out of Mexico City, Yield Street buying Cadre. Cadre, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. I hope so. I don't know all the details, but reportedly was kind of troubled, not doing very well. So Yield Street saw an opportunity there mm-hmm. to your point. Mm-hmm. And to Cadre, for Cadre, I was like, hey, better than just folding, right? We're getting acquired. And so absolutely, yeah. Problem, right? You know, yeah, mm-hmm. they probably got acquired for far less than what they were valued at a few years ago. But yeah, I would say it's you're right, it's a mix of things, but I feel like a big driver was these companies saying, "Okay, we have a hole. We could spend this much time, this much money, all these people dedicated to trying to build out this technology or we just go buy a startup that's already done it." And realize that's the far faster and more efficient way to do it, which is, you know, just kind of feels simplistic, but I think was the case for a lot of these. And then also, like we like we said, just opportunities. Some with Weeble wanted to get into Latin America, saw its opportunity by acquiring a company called Flink. And boom, it's got customers in in Latin America. Then in caught with Cadre, you know, troubled company. Okay, well, honestly, some Street probably kind of took advantage of that. I'm not saying they did anything underhanded. Sure. They were just doing good business, right? Okay. It's an opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They can help us in terms of with real estate investors and they're kind of struggling. It's a win-win. I can hear, hear them saying it's a win-win. So yeah, it was varied. Not at all unexpected, of course, though. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, it definitely does seem to come in waves. I noticed a similar wave in 2021 and sort of at the beginning of 2022 as well, where there were a lot of acquisitions. And, you know, I think one of the things that we sometimes don't do a good enough job on when it comes to reporting and analysis on the fintech space is 
I know I'm guilty of this. I don't always check back in on acquisitions after they happen, yeah. right? Like it's, oh, it's big right. news and it was an acquisition, but I probably need to like, you know, give myself a to-do for 2024 to circle back on some of these and go like, mm-hmm. hey, whatever happened to, you know, Robinhood's new credit card? And like, is that coming out soon? And just like kind of continuing to push on those. And of course, the most dramatic version of the sort of after acquisition story, which did also break in 2023. And I just wanted to mention it because it's, I mean, it's honestly kind of hilarious, but the JP Morgan Chase acquisition of Frank that ended up being fraudulent was the other, right. yeah, one of the other stories from 2023 that I, I probably won't forget anytime soon, just because so many of the details in terms of the alleged deception that happened to close that acquisition were so sort of insane. And that story continues to provide plenty of popcorn-worthy entertainment. Apparently, the latest thing that J.P. Morgan Chase is concerned about is the founder of that company's army of 77 lawyers that she has that is racking up expensive legal bills that they don't want to be on the hook for in case the judgment doesn't go their way. So just all kinds of wild stuff there. But I guess that's what acquisitions look like in the possible absolute worst case, right? Yes, definitely an example of a, a worst case scenario. And that was really enthralling to watch. Just I think and part of I mean, was. I don't know about you, but part of it for me was like, it's not like we're not talking about a startup buying another startup. We're talking about JP Morgan. They're huge. Biggest bank in the world. Huge. Yeah. Lots of money, lots of lawyers, lots of resources. How how did this happen? How could they not have known that this company was pulling one over on them how could they not have known that the, there was all these fake members or customers like i think that's what blew my mind the most totally yeah it's amazing the best detail from it was someone at jp morgan chase apparently figured it out because they figured out that the number of fake customers that were on the list that was provided by frank just so happened to equal the maximum number of rows that you can put in an excel spreadsheet oh my and i don't know gosh. who at jp morgan chase knew that like the maximum number of cells in an Excel spreadsheet is X. But when they saw that, they're like, oh, well, that's suspicious. And so like just crazy stuff like that. But I agree. I I remember after that happened, Mike Mayo, who's a a well-known bank earnings analyst who goes on a lot of the bank earnings calls and has a pretty contentious relationship with a lot of the big bank CEOs, including Jamie Dimon at Chase. He asked in his typical annoying fashion, like what happened with the Frank deal? And I remember Jamie Dimon basically kind of shrugging his shoulders and saying, you know, if you're at bat, you're going to miss some, you know, like if you get enough at bats, you're not going to bat perfectly. And, you know, that sounded like a good answer, but I had the same reaction you did, which is like, okay, maybe you're not going to bat perfectly, but like, how could you miss this? You know? Yes. I mean, it was nuts. And, you know, this is, of course, me speaking as if already, you know, these allegations are true, which probably maybe I should be careful exactly. of because nothing has been. No, no, yeah, and, still, still know, in the innocent process. Innocent until yeah. proven guilty, right? But if, if yes, the allegations are true, then it's like, wow, you know, and you know, maybe it's because they're so big that they missed it. Like maybe a smaller company which has more at stake could be might have taken mm-hmm. more time and dug deeper than you know a J.P. Morgan would. I think that's absolutely true. And that's probably a good place to leave this one because I do actually think that there might be in 2024 more. I don't want to say like same size acquisitions, but I wonder if like the, the distinction between small company and gigantic company as a, an M&A transaction might sort of morph more into slightly bigger company acquire slightly mm-hmm. smaller company. And to your point, that would necessitate a much more 
sort of detailed level of due diligence because you know if you only get one at bat, you absolutely have to make contact with the ball. So that may be the direction we're headed in. Marianne, before I let you go, again, we're coming up on the holidays. By the time folks listen to this, we'll be right into the holiday season. I was a bit of a Seinfeld fan growing up, so I thought we might do a quick airing of grievances, if you're okay with that. And when I was thinking about when I was thinking about the topic for like an airing of grievances with you, and I mean, everyone who has listened to the Equity podcast or reads Marianne's stuff knows she's very calm. She's very nice. She's very even keeled. So I'm going to do my best to kind of get her wound up here. But um, I was thinking it might be fun to do a quick airing of grievances on pitching. Uh, I know you get pitched a great number of stories, probably a thousand times the volume of stories that I get pitched, which is a scary thought because I get pitched a lot of stories for the newsletter. I get pitched on things relating to the podcast. And not to start off on a super negative note, but I would say the vast majority of those pitches could be improved if people were to do them a little different. So that maybe we could take turns sharing some of our frustrations from pitches that we've been getting, particularly over the last year, and maybe provide a little bit of helpful advice on how to pitch a little bit better. So if you wouldn't mind, Marianne, could you go first and give us something that is not your favorite when you get pitched and maybe a a suggestion for how to do it better? I would say, you know, first off, people, it's your wording, your language just get to the point too, right? Like, don't give me a bunch of fluff. Yeah. I, I cannot stand when I'm pitched a, a story about a company and then I've read an email two or three times. I still cannot tell what the company does. You know, it's like, don't mm. give me a bunch of jargon. Don't give me a lot of fluff. Just get to the point. Okay, this company does this. This is why it's important. This is why your readers might care. This is what I'm curious as to what you, if you'd want to write about. You know, I, I just... We don't have a lot mm-hmm. of time. If I did happen to open your email, which, you know, I don't always can open every email because there's too many, as you know. Right. So um, right. don't waste yep. my time. Like, just don't make me have to hunt down what the company does or don't pitch me a fundraise and don't even tell me how much the company raised. I mean, just tell me. Tell me up front. They've raised this much. Here are the investors, especially if I've already agreed to an embargo. And so... That's one pet totally. peeve is is like, if you're pitching me, just give me the news. Don't make me hunt it down because sometimes I'll get busy and I won't even bother to to ask you a follow-up question. Totally. Another is like, read my stuff and just think to yourself, have I ever seen Marianne cover anything like this before? Hmm. No. Don't pitch it. Mm-hmm. Just don't. Like, I, I feel like a lot of PR people mm-hmm. maybe feel like they have to meet certain quotas or tell their clients, yes, we did pitch to TechCrunch. But if I keep getting pitches yep. from you that are irrelevant or not something we'd cover, you know, I stop opening your email eventually. So, like, try to be more selective. Think to yourself, am I going to really write about your new hire or this new feature that's maybe a huge deal for your company, but not necessarily super big news for our readers, right? Just think about it, be more selective. Now, having said that, I know people, one thing that they do is they recognize it and they'll say in the subject line, okay, for the interchange, which is our FinTech newsletter, which is where we may include these sort of items that were not necessarily big enough news for us to write stories about, but I might mention in my newsletter. So I appreciate that. If you've got news like that, go ahead and put it in the subject line for consideration in the interchange, you know, just make it clear up front. No, that's great. You hit on a bunch of good ones that are are similar to me. I mean, the reading your stuff is such an important one to me. <laughs> I think the craziest one I got pitched in 2023. I don't know how I get on some of these lists, honestly, because like anything that's fintech or financial services related, it's like, okay, that's fair. 
you know, like crypto was always a good example for me where it's like, if you've read my stuff or you've listened to my podcast, you probably know, like, I'm not the world's biggest crypto fan. And so, like, yeah, same, be, same. be careful if you pitch me a crypto thing, right? Like, it's right. probably not going to go great. But at least, like, you can see how they got there. I got one that was a celebrity that I had never heard of from some kind of reality TV show who was launching uh, his own line of clothing for pets. And it was so outside the realm of anything that I've ever even contemplated thinking about, let alone writing about in a professional capacity. I almost wanted to cover the news in the newsletter and be like, (laughs) today's newsletter is about clothing for pets, because apparently I covered that. So you do get the like really, really wild outside the box ones. But I would say you're right. Like in general, please, please read my stuff. Have like an in-depth understanding of like what I talk about. I always respond really well to pitches where people actually reference specific things I've written in the Mm -hmm. past because like that shows me very specifically like, hey, you covered this. That's why I thought of you. We think this would be a great story to tell. The other thing that you touched on that is kind of an annoying one to me, and I get why this works the way it does, but the whole teasing the news thing, I don't have time for that. You know what I mean? Like in a perfect world, I'd love to get an email going, hey, thinking about you. And then you respond going, why? And then they go, well, because I have some news. And then you go, well, what's the news? And they're like, well, it's under embargo. And you go, okay, I agree. Like, it'd be cool to exchange 12 emails about it. But like, I don't have that kind of time. And so like, to me, like a really good way to do it is send me the information, say it's under embargo, ask me if I want to cover it. If I say no, I'll totally understand if you move on. If I don't respond because I didn't see it or I didn't have time to respond and you move on, that's totally fine too. But like, make it easy for me to sort through my inbox and go like, okay, this company, $12 million series A, here are the three details. Like, just exactly. give me the bullet points as fast as possible. Right. I mean, don't they, I don't know if people realize, and we're talking about massive volumes of email. I, I don't have time to be going back totally. and forth, you know, and it's not that hard. And I, I get it that some people are, are reluctant to share too many details until a reporter or, or a writer agrees to the embargo. Fine. Okay. That might take one or two emails. But once I've agreed, sure. there's no reason sure. why you can't just get to the point, give me all the high level details. I don't need all the flowery language. And differentiator is important too, especially in fintech. Like I need to understand what is different about your company because it's so many companies in this space are doing such similar things. Like I I can't tell a lot of them apart. Tell me why are you unique? What are you doing that's really different? And of course that's going to be subjective sometimes, but you know, sometimes it really can help make a company stand out. Yeah, no, I totally agree. I mean, I to to build on that point, I have a rule for pitching that I sort of in my own head refer to as the I'm not your mom rule, which is to mm-hmm. say, if you told your mom this, she would be very proud of you and very excited <laughs> for you. But your mom is the only person in the world who reacts to things like that, right? The rest of us, you have to put it in the context of why I should care and why my readers should care. Exactly. And it's remarkable how few people do that when they're pitching stuff because it's like, well, this is a really cool feature or like this was really hard for us to build. And it's like, okay, I get that the team internally is excited, but like that doesn't mean that it is in any way newsworthy or connects to a larger trend. Like, you know, you have to draw a pretty clear line for me on like, 
we did this, but that's not really the story. The story is it's part of this larger thing that we exactly. think it's important for your audience to know about. But you know why some companies don't like to do that? Because they don't want to be included necessarily in a story where their competitors are mentioned. But actually, you might be more likely to get coverage if you right. say, you know, hey, this is part of a larger trend. So-and-so is doing this and so-and-so is doing that. Then our ears perk up. And so maybe if I don't do a news article, I might refer it to our TC plus team and they might do a trends piece and you might actually get coverage. Whereas, Mm -hmm. you know, that's better than nothing in my opinion. So I feel like don't be afraid to point out the trends because we're not going to notice, we're not going to know all of them. I mean, we don't know all the trends. Absolutely. Yeah. And another thing that is is a pet peeve is don't offer multiple reporters an exclusive at the same time. That's really annoying. Oh, yeah. That happens too. And it's like they do it and hoping to see, let's see who bites. And then that's happened to me before where I'm like, okay, I'll do it. And then they're like, oh, well, I actually offered it to someone else as well. And they have given it to them. And I'm like, yeah. what? Yeah. Like, come on, don't do that. If you're going to offer an exclusive, totally offer it. If I don't take you up on it, then you can move on. You know, like you said, a certain amount of time passes, move on. But like, don't do multiple people at the same time. That's just wrong. No, I totally agree with you. And it comes back to bite you, right? Like multiple people will say yes. And so I, I get the impulse to just like shotgun it out there across a whole bunch of people at the same time. I understand the efficiency and the fact that most of the time you don't get any bites. But it, to, your, to your point, it does happen. You get multiple bites and then you have to go back with your tail between your leg and explain like why you know we're not going to be able to give you the exclusive. The other thing that I think probably that you run into more than I do, although it comes up with me too, is reporters talk to each other which is something you probably should know. But like, I, I know there are folks who blasted out to multiple people at TechCrunch at the same time. Like you all have like an internal Slack, like you talk to each other. So like, probably don't do that. You know, I even like, you know, I mean, if it's like an independent sort of journalist or analyst like myself or Jason Mikula or whomever, like, you know, don't assume that like, you know, we won't hear about it if you're pitching it to multiple people or whatever's happening. So like, I just kind of keep that in mind. And I think sort of act like a human as it relates to like pitching these things. That's important as well. Yeah. And I think every publication, every staff has different opinions on this. But personally, I believe most of us at TechCrunch would prefer if you're going to pitch five of us on a story, copy us so that we Mm -hmm. can all know that we're being pitched. And if one of us takes you up on it, We'll copy all so that we're not... The rest of you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the rest of us know. Two of us aren't working on the same thing at the same time or we're having to talk about it on mm-hmm. Slack. Just keep us... Just include all of us. So, hey, I thought thought you all might be interested. If any of you wants to pick this up, let me know. But to like email us individually, I don't think is the best approach. That's just me, though. There are probably a lot of other reporters that might disagree with that, but I just don't think it's the best approach. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree with you. And I think the only other one I would toss out there is um, there is and I get a lot of pitches for folks who want to come on my podcast. There's a strange like subgenre of executives who seem hell bent on getting on podcasts, regardless of like if it's a good fit or anything else. And so I'll get these pitches from PR folks that almost have this note of desperation, like if I don't get my boss on a podcast in the next quarter, I'm going to get fired, which I like. Right. There's like this desperation that comes through. And the thing that I, I always try to tell people with the podcast specifically is pitches rarely work for the podcast. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think the reason for that is, you know, I'll get pitches that are like, this is so and so. Here's what they do. Here's their qualifications and all the things they could talk about, all the subjects they could talk about. Here's, you know, they have 25 years of experience in the industry. 
And that's all fine and useful. But the thing that that doesn't tell me and that I can't learn from getting a pitch is, I don't know if the person is a good podcast guest. Like, I don't know if they're entertaining. Mm -hmm. I don't know if they're candid. I don't know if they're funny. I don't know if they speak well. I don't know if they're willing to be sort of, you know, I mean, my podcast is kind of silly and we play like silly games on it. Like, I, I don't know any of those things. And so as a result... I tend to pick folks to come on the podcast or even to like interview in the newsletter based somewhat on like what I know about them, right? Like, Mm -hmm, are mm -hmm. they on Twitter? Have they been on other podcasts? Did they do their own writing where I can see a little bit of their personality? And when I can see those things, when I can listen to Marianne on the Equity podcast for, I don't know how many uh, years I've been listening now, but like, you know, when I can like listen to you talk, I know that you'd be a good guest on the FinTech Takes podcast. If the person you're pitching me, if there's no way for me to get that insight, then it doesn't really matter what their qualifications are. Great points. Yeah. And we do get a ton of pitches. So I don't necessarily want to discourage folks from pitching, but would agree with that. And I would no, say, me neither. I, was, I have to say, though, that probably like I think the biggest or the most popular podcast on Spotify last year, the equity podcast that is, was my interview with oh, sure. Newbank CEO. David. Oh, David. Is it Velez? Yeah. Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah. Velez. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Velez performed really, really, really well. And I would say that's not because of me, because of him. Totally. A good podcast guest doesn't just get on a podcast with the pretending to, to want to talk about general things, but really they're just trying to plug their own stuff. A good podcast mm-hmm. guest is mm-hmm. really genuinely on there just to talk generally about a space or a market and not just trying to further their own agenda. That comes through. People aren't stupid. You can hear it. You can tell. He was a great guest and he said what was on his mind and he had interesting things to say and he wasn't just trying to talk about how fabulous Newbank is. So that particular episode performed really well. So if you want to attract the attention of podcast hosts, we pay attention to stuff like that. Like you said, people on Twitter, there's a a VC who always tweets stuff that I think is she's very candid. You know, we want the authenticity. We want the people who really aren't afraid to say what's on their mind and not just trying to you know, the PR speak or trying to say what they think is going to make them look good or their company look good. We want the real stuff. That's what the listeners want too. So keep that in mind. So if you do pitch, which again, I'd say it's, we rarely necessarily, I don't want to say we accept, we rarely accept podcast submissions, but usually they are more, not so much inbound as they are that we- It's a special thing identified people. But if you are going to pitch, do your point it out. Hey, here's a Twitter feed. Look at the types of tweets so-and-so does, or here's a podcast that so-and-so did so that we can get those glimpses into that person's personality or whether or not they're going to make a good guest. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, the thinking about the podcast pitch as more like Imagine you were pitching it as like a cocktail party or a private dinner, right? Like these people would get along great if I locked them all in a room for three hours together. They would just have great conversations. That's the kind of people we're looking for. And sometimes it's the CEO of the largest digital bank in Latin America. And sometimes it's a 25-year-old fintech founder who no one's ever heard of, right? Like it's to me, it's much more about the personalities and the story and sort of the chemistry Mm -hmm. that's going to come out of that conversation and a lot less about title qualifications, those kind of things. So no, I, I completely agree. Marianne, you have lived up to my expectations as a podcast guest. You were extraordinarily Aww. authentic and honest, and I really appreciate you 
coming on and joining me. I hope you have a wonderful holiday and uh, get a chance to take a bit of a break. Uh, people listening, like leave Marianne alone for a week and let her get a little rest. And then um, we look forward to uh, reading and listening to your stuff uh, all throughout 2024. And hopefully you'll come back on the podcast as well. Oh my gosh, thank you. I mean, hey, all the same goes for you. I appreciate your authenticity, your your takes as, it, as you call them are always on target, fun to read full of analysis and you know just you're one of the best in the industry to read to learn about fintech news so thank you thank you so much for having me absolutely thank you thank you for listening to this episode of fintech takes stay up to date with emerging companies and the latest fintech trends by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and if you love fintech takes please tell a friend